HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we explore the relationship between food and style. I knew from the start that I never wanted to, like, hot glue bread onto my body. <laughs> like, I wanted to be able to eat, enjoy it after, and I did. Food, which is so ephemeral, right? It's something that you eat and it disappears. With an image, it remains. It stays alive forever. Food and fashion align in that they're both lenses through which to look at culture, right? And they're both also tangible things we can use to express ourselves and our identities. Tune in to Meet in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Amanda Smeltz. We'll talk to Amanda about the wine and hospitality business and leaving it. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Poet turned sommelier turned poet. Amanda Smeltz left Pennsylvania to study at Marquette in Milwaukee. She stayed in Milwaukee, one of the world's great food and wine capitals, to learn hospitality, then headed to New York. A longtime Brooklynite, Amanda worked at groundbreaking Roberta's in Bushwick, Daniel Balud's Bar Balud and Balud Sud, and eventually Estella and Cafe Altro Paradiso with Iggy Matos. Amanda Smeltz is a published writer and poet. Welcome back. To the great nation, Amanda. We're talking to Amanda live via Zencaster. Where are you physically right now? Uh, I'm in my very hot front bedroom in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Glamorous, so glamorous June in, in hot, hot Bushwick. So you're back in Brooklyn. Yeah. And it's nice and hot. Um, I want to say a few things. Um, 
Amanda was on the show four and a half years ago. Amanda, you were on show number 16, February 1st, 2017. And right now we are recording show number 189. And I want to read something to you that I read to you then that I want to read again now. Okay? So bear with me through this. Tonight, I'm too stupid to write a poem. Who knows what poetry is? I know. My voice is too pronounced. My pronoun I is a needless gnome. I fall asleep in the spelling quiz and sink to the shipwrecks and fathoms below on the titanic mosses grow. The moon has been pronounced in bur burning tigers pounce right off the golden gate. Your poetry must obfuscate or end up middle brow. Madonna says, take a bow. So that last line, Madonna says, take a bow. And the title of this poem, Crown for a Natural Disaster, I thought was very cool then, and I think it's very appropriate now. So I thought I would just read that back to you, because I like hearing your poetry, and hopefully you like hearing it too. All right, so let's get started. But before we get into things, I just want to just check in a little. I noticed from Instagram that you were on the road out well, Western yes. Oregon. Yep, for a couple well, of weeks. I was out in uh, Portland and the Columbia Gorge. Now that was just take time, get away? Uh, Self-edification. Self <laughs> okay. Most of my uh, travel these days is at least somewhat educational. <laughs> right. And I noticed you were at High U Farm. Tell me some of the places you went to. <laughs> um, yeah, I was there for a week and I was trying to meet. Um, it was my third time at High U. Um, China and Nate, who run the place, have become friends of mine um, over the years. And uh, because they're super plugged in on what's happening on that very young in that very young AVA, um, I was also meeting some other young people who are you know either starting new projects or beginning to bottle their own wine in the area. So um, I was with right. Michael Garofala from Cutter Cascadia, who's working in a really interesting um, sort of warm pocket of the Eastern Gorge. Um, and I met some other young people. Um, this woman. Bethany uh, from the Color Collector. She's got a brand new project where she's putting in some vines out there. Um, nice. So yeah, just tooling around, talking with some new folks, old folks, um, just getting the lay of the land on a, an Appalachian in our country that I think is really, really exciting and I've been interested in for probably the last four or five years for sure. Yeah, we had Nate on the show a couple times. He was just recently on, and it's always interesting to hear from him. He's probably, arguably, one of the coolest guests to listen to. Um, and you beat the heat wave, I guess, but you're sitting in it now. Yeah. Um, aren't you heading somewhere in July up to Massachusetts? I am, Tell me a little yes. about that. Um, I was accepted for a uh, writer's residency or an artist's residency um, with an organization in Massachusetts called the Mastheads. Um, right. And it's so named because the, the residency takes place on a farm in very Western Mass uh, called Arrowhead, which was owned by Herman Melville and still belongs wow. to the family. Yeah. So Melville had this um, small-ish farm that he would retire to in the summers to, to write. And he had friends come through and write there as well. Um, and it's still, you know, it's still an intact farm, but I guess somehow the, the organization that was taking care of that farm got in touch with the Massachusetts state government and their arts endowment and said, Hey, we want to do something with this farm. Um, why don't we create like a public arts 
kind of works organization around the farm. And that launched, I guess, six or seven years ago. And so now every summer they invite anywhere from four to six artists to come be on the farm property for a couple weeks. And they had an architect build mobile studios that they move throughout the woodland and the pasture land that's actually on the farm where you get to go work um, sort of without electricity and without uh, Wi-Fi for, wow. for several hours out of the day, like seven or eight hours if you want. Um, and that's that's a pretty rare opportunity, certainly to be connected to that kind of um, yeah. literary history, but also you know, just to get time and space to sit and think for that long. It's a, it's a pretty righteous thing. So I'll be up, up there for a couple of weeks. So that'll, whatever creative juices you have, that'll really get everything flowing. We're going to have to check in with you after that, um, to see how the trip was and what comes about. Um, now we will get to the fact that you are heading up to Massachusetts to write and, you know, seclude yourself a little versus taking a wine trip to the Loire or Girard, which is really, you know, why I wanted to talk to you. So to delve into it, um, I don't think any industry sector got hit harder than the restaurant and hospitality industry um, during the pandemic. Um, what I want you to do, because it had so many effects on you, including what we're talking about now, is talk to me about life during the pandemic, um, you know, during now and what effect it had on you. And I guess it's fair to say, and what was interesting to me is how it's changed or it's changing the course of your life. Yeah, um, it's a really complicated question because it's been a very long 15 months for, you know, myself, but also for everybody in the world, right? So, right. So it's, I think the complicated thing about talking about like, okay, you worked in restaurants, you worked through the pandemic, um, you know, like, what's the deal? The trouble with this, with the conversation is, you know, there's the global lens on what has happened and is still happening with the pandemic, which is that you know, millions of people have suffered and many hundreds of thousands of people have died. Um, and that, that is something that I have tried to keep in front of my face throughout the course of this whole year, because whatever, whatever routine suffering or whatever inconveniences happen on the level of one's job or one's day-to-day -day work, um, you know, one's, one's routines being disrupted, they sort of pale in comparison to the reality, which is, which is that, you know, um, zoonotic disease brought on by the way that we interact with the planet is terrifying, right? And is, is right. a disaster. And it's something that we need to take, like we're, we're way overdue to take a hard, hard look at this because these kinds of illnesses have been emerging based on our relationship with the planet, with the rest of the planet that we belong to um, for the last 40 or 50 years, right? This COVID-19 is not the first one. No. Um, and, and, you know, like, I think a lot about agriculture these days. I, I sort of think about it nonstop. And, you know, not only do I think about agriculture, I think about agriculture in the context of how we're treating ourselves, how we're treating our bodies, how we're treating the planet, like why we consume what we consume, but also what the impact is of our decision making on everything and everybody around us, right? So, in some ways, working in restaurants is like a teeny, teeny, tiny little version of thinking about those things, you know, like where right. does the food come from that we buy? Um, how much of it are we throwing away? You know, what, how much glass am I burning through when I sell a, a ton of wine in a single night? You know, uh, like you do start to kind of 
think about those things. And then you also think about like, what about labor? Like what's happening with myself and my body, what's happening to my coworkers and and their bodies, um, their families' bodies, you know, and that, that was the stuff that I ended up thinking about, especially on the front of like human bodies a lot during the pandemic, because it was such a, um, working in restaurants is so physical, you know, from the get go. Um, but then when you add a physical element of, you know, from March of last year until March of this year, everyone was really somewhat frightened by being at work, you know, and that, that adds like an extra layer of, okay, this work was already hard emotionally and psychologically. It's hard physically. You're on your feet for anywhere for eight to 10 hours a day. You're interacting with strangers all night long, you know, and you, and you sort of always have to be presenting a, a kind of hospitable demeanor. So there's all of the regular demands, but then there was an extra demand that's like, listen, you know, I work with um, a lot of vulnerable people and I myself got COVID immediately in that first wave back in, in March of 2020 in New York. Here. Me too. And, yeah. And I, th- I know like 27 other people who did. You know? And and nobody knew what the hell to do then. I mean, it yeah. was just so new and literally novel to, you know, everyone. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it was frightening. I think there were a solid four or six weeks where, um, I, I didn't leave my apartment because my partner had it and then I got it back to back and we were just like, okay, well, we don't want to kill anybody. So we have to literally, we have to stay inside (laughs) and that, that, you know, that's a really trippy, um, that's a really trippy experience. It's, It's the opposite of what your lifestyle was. For sure. I don't think I've ever. I was saying to friends in the spring, like, I don't think I've ever not gotten on the subway for more than like a week or two at a time. I wasn't on the subway for like three months. Crazy. Yeah. It's just a radically different experience of what it means to live and work in New York. And it casts a long shadow over many activities that might otherwise have seemed um, totally acceptable the way they were. Um, You know, I you you hit a lot of areas, you know, that I want to talk about. I sure. mean, ironically, you hit everything that's, you know, points of discussion for me. But I just want to say a couple things. Um, first of all, it sounds like the pandemic gave you this global overall, you know, perspective that it's not just, you know, me, the industry. I mean, there's a whole, you know, thing to it that I'm hearing from you. Um I also think you're right. You know, we are a reactive society, not proactive. Yeah. Um, you know, we have we should have been doing things that we didn't, um, and you know, we're stuck there now. And you you hit it right on the nose that when something like this happens, you know, we're unprepared and we've done nothing for preparation. Um, the other thing is, and I just want you to talk about this briefly, just because of who you are and what you were doing, you admitted getting COVID and you were one of the people that it had an effect that was negative to what was important to you at that yeah. time, yeah. which was your smell and taste. I mean, yeah. obviously you freaked out a little. Oh, it was unbelievably frightening. You know, it, it's weird because on one hand you're like, okay, I've been lucky. I've had, you know, pretty solid healthcare much of my life. You know, I even though I went through 10 years of being uninsured as, you know, as a restaurant worker. Right. Um, but I've still had pretty decent health care through most of my childhood and adolescence. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in pretty good shape. Like I'm, I don't have any underlying sort of, um, you conditions. know, conditions, right. That would make COVID especially dangerous for me. So on one hand, you're like, look, you know, 
be grateful for your, the mercies that you have and like, and let that be that. But on the, on the other hand, when I started reading like how this sense of smell and taste comes about, it's not like when you have a cold, right? It's not like you get stuffed up and you just can't smell right. anything because of a physical blockage. It's nerve damage. Yeah. And understanding that the virus, because of its entry through the mouth of the nose of the ears of the eyes, that its immediate kind of ground for damage first is in the nervous system, you know, right behind your eyes and your nose. That's incredibly alarming. Like those nerves connect almost immediately to your brain. Yeah. Um, and they're really close to your brain, you know? And yeah. I, like when I started reading about it because I'm a sicko and like anytime anything is happening, like my first instinct is to go learn. Like I, like if I have any kind of stress in my life, I'm like, you know, let's, you, let's you learn about what's going on. quadrupled it. Yeah. 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 Right. If only because I wanted to understand what was happening to me. And I, you know, there were a few days where I had this sort of moment of being like, what if this never comes back? Like, what if I genuinely can never taste my food again and can oh never smell, you know, coffee, someone cooking and wine? And I, I really was like, I felt the a small inkling of what the grief must be to have something and then to not have it again. Um, it's a really, mm. it's a really sort of stark thing to be walking around your little space, you know, like it's, it's summer in Bushwick. Like when I open my front door to my apartment oh, building, boy, I am, you get I'm, the odors. I'm bombarded with smell, <laughs> yeah. right? Like I'm bombarded <laughs> with smell, good and bad. And like that, but that's part of living, right? Is right. that your human animal body is sort of, communicating all of these things to you by the encounter with aroma and it's communicating positive things and negative things and things to be wary of. Like you're having a very animal experience of the world and, and to not have that, that sort of visceral connection to the aromatic world is I realized like, boy, we really don't pay enough attention to how no, lucky this not, thing is, you know? Ooh. We're not even getting into sight or hearing. I mean, you know, all the senses. Now, in your sort of research studying, did it come to you at any point that it seems like it would come back? Did it put you at any ease or not necessarily? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm like, okay, well, don't panic. It seems like many people have had a sort of temporary right. version of this. But, um, you know, but I have spoken to a number of people who are like, I am not the same. Um, and, and whose right. senses of smell, you know, are now patchy or they're half they're sort of half of what they used to be and i i do think that we're probably going to out of the many many millions and millions of people who've gotten this you know illness i think we are going to see a, at least a some swath who do have permanent nerve damage and um you know that it's just like kind of heartbreaking just like we're seeing people who have yeah. like long haul long haulers yeah. symptoms and neurological symptoms you know clear something up for me your smell and taste is near normal or not yeah. necessarily okay they're, they're so 90 percent there okay um, and, so and I, hopefully I we'll lucky. get a little bit all right i said to you that you touched on a lot of areas i want to talk about but i think now's a good time to kind of set up you know in the intro you, you know you worked at some you know pretty prominent and cool places um estella and altro paradiso certainly are at the top of that chart but tell me today we're looking behind at all of that. Yeah, it's a. Tell me, me the decision a, you made and what you're doing, and then I want to go a little backwards and you know okay. figure out a few things. So yeah, so I left. I left my restaurant job about three weeks ago. Um, okay. 
And I think, you know, in a few years, I probably would have made that decision anyway. I, it was my plan and my intention to sort of stay with Ignacio at Estella and at Ultra Paradiso for probably, you know, four or five years right. to, get, to get a really good run in and then kind of decide what's next. Um, but I will say without trying to, you know, be um, self-indulgent, you know, the last, the last year of working on and off because I, I worked for six months and then was furloughed again and then worked again for the last four months. Um, it, it easily the hardest year I've ever had in my work life. Um, and easily the most stressful. Um, and quite frankly, like the least satisfying in terms of, you know, am I, right. am I working for the right reasons? Am I, am I working for the, you know, for a benefit to myself or am I, am I working to strictly benefit other people? And, I'm having to take a hard look at that right now because it's very easy in restaurants to kind of give your body and your brain completely to it to work 60, 70 hours a week. And, you know, regardless of how you're paid, like there's almost no amount of money that can make it worth it right. anyway. But then frequently people who are working like that are also underpaid. So there, there does come a moment when you're like, okay, my love of the thing aside, because I do genuinely love the work and I've been working in restaurants since I was 14. So I have 22 years behind me <laughs> in this line right. of work. It's not like I'm a dabbler. You know what I mean? Um, right. I, it, my love of the thing aside, you do get to a point where you're like, okay, simply from a physical health, emotional health, mental health standpoint, like I don't know that I can sustain the intensity of this kind of work. It, I, I was already saying, okay, by the time, by the time I get 25 years in, I might call it you know, and start so the, to transition into something else. But the pandemic absolutely sped that along. Okay. So the pandemic did accelerate it. Yeah. Um, and that's okay, right? I, I mean, I don't know. I feel, I have very well, it's mixed not feelings okay. about we it. Had a pan <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, I, I, re I retract my, I withdraw my question. It's a silly question. Yeah. Um, it, well, it's not okay or okay. It happened and yeah. this is the effect it had on you. Yeah. We'll, I think we'll it's leave more, it at that. It's more like it's a moment of reflection for me now to say, to try to gather my thoughts, you know, like it's an immensely intense 15 months. And then before that, it was still kind of pedal to the metal the entire way through it also. Right. Like I didn't, I haven't taken much time to think or rest in the last, you know, 12, 13 years of my career, you know, and, um, well, you will in the Berkshires in July, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, you'll have plenty of time to that's reflect. The, yeah. That's kind of the intention. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's good timing for everything. Um, you know, and a lot of great people in the industry spoke up during the pandemic, they published articles and they made, literally concrete suggestions, you know, for change. I had a bunch of these people on the show, you mm -hmm. know, like Miguel de Leon and Julie Coney and a bunch of other people. Um, I always wonder, and, and I think you would have perspective on this. We knew the industry's effed up, you know, and as you talk, it sort of comes out, um, you know, what's going on there. But why did it take the pandemic to shine like such a bright light on existing racism, diversity issues, inequality, and, you know, sexual harassment, you know, which has been going on before, during, and I'm sure now. Um, you, you know, why during the pandemic? Why not sooner? I mean, what's your take on that? Because it really came to the top. Do you agree? Yeah, I absolutely do. Um, I, have a, I have a bizarre take on this, maybe. Um, I'd love to hear it. I think it is easy without a crisis 
to continue in ruts of habit, right? If there are deep grooves, uh, agree. If there are deep, deep grooves formed either in one's individual mind or in the cultural mind that are worn deeply and heavily by wagon wheels that you keep running through the same ruts, it's extremely right. difficult to bump that wagon up off that track because people are we are creatures of habit and it, it's, it's actually how our brain works, right? Like we, we form habits when we are young and they form wrinkles in our brain and they become the ruts that we work through. And if we've chosen, you know, insidious ruts to be running our wheels through, um, that's a long-term problem that can take a long time to undo. Um, and I, that's, Agreed. that's like what we're messing with right now. But I think that it is, it's crisis that rends, you know, a superficial fa fabric that's been laid over top of all of that, rends it wide open and everything kind of comes tumbling out. Um, you know, there are plenty of people who've been talking openly and consistently about these things throughout. Before. Yeah, for decades yeah. before, yeah. right? It's, it's simply that it is without a, a critical mass of people talking, I think it is too difficult to want to get those wheels out of the ruts, you know, like, and, and plus there's the, you know, the sad truth that like, look, people at the top benefit from these things going on, you know, like in, investors who have a lot of money and really glamorous restaurants and stuff like they benefit from people at the bottom only being paid minimum wage and less. They, you know, they benefit from people not having health care, largely because like they're allowed to kind of throw the money around and have all the fun and all of the glamour and all of the, you know, exciting parts of being able to dine and fascinating places and whatever, but they don't have to deal with, you know, the, they don't have to deal with the disadvantaged. They don't even see them. Right. So, so, you, so you, you talk about the beauty of wine. I mean, we're all wine lovers mm -hmm. and, you know, through the years we realize it's all about the grape and the farmers and agriculture in the future, you know, and we can do five shows on the beauty of wine, but you're not alluding, you're laying out how in, I think in your words, it's wasted on the wealthy, everything you just said, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I mean, that's, it's not that's just, part it's not of, just wine. It's, it's sort of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wine's know. a good microcosm of society of, totally. you know, how the wealthy, um, but it is pretty obvious, um, you know, in wine and restaurants, you know, how money sort of sways and it leaves behind, you know, all those issues. Yeah. Um, do you. You know, it's funny you said before, you know, on top of everything else, you, you know, with all the harassment, diversity, racism and all that, there's still the individual, the life, work balance and the physical and mental welfare of the hospitality worker, which I think was as low recently as it has been. Right. Yeah, sure. Um, so do you have any hope? I mean, have the voices that tried to get the wagon wheel out of the track and the pause people had to take towards the, toward, during the pandemic, do you have hope that things will change at any pace or it's going to be um, more of the same? How do you, you're walking away from it in a good way. I'm not alluding you're walking away from oh, yeah, it, but sure, you don't sure. have to deal with it. You, you know, what's your hope? What do you feel? My hope lies in policy. <laughs> okay. Uh, but explain. If, if you, if one, um, 
hopes to try to change the the thing, right? Just call it the restaurant industry, for example, by only talking and only kind of um, increasing people's awareness of the issues. And that that is not followed <laughs> by Im- immense pressure on local lawmakers, state, federal, to attempt to fix some of the labor issues, the real estate issues. Um, you know, for example, if real estate were not set up the way that it is in New York, right. you would have 10 times as many tiny independent businesses that mm-hmm. would not have to underpay their workers just to make them work. Right. right. Like if you were able to rent a tiny storefront in the Lower East Side for a thousand dollars a month, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. You could pay everybody twenty to twenty-five dollars an hour as right. a minimum wage, and it would be a completely different world, right? So one yep. way to do it would just be to enforce a minimum wage of twenty to twenty-five dollars an hour and start to work on policies that put some sort of real estate cap on, you know, the companies that develop and own properties, right? Right. Like this would be these would be concrete policy actions that New York City, for example, just as an example, could take to stop this city from spiraling out into the, you know, unbelievable, like, capital suck that it is, right? And, and making right. it impossible for normal people just to, like, have a, I don't know, have a little lunch counter or whatever. Like, like it shouldn't be, it restaurants shouldn't have to be this, Sort like, of like the old, old days where yeah, there was yeah. stuff like that on every corner. Exactly, you know? exactly, right? And, and it, there, the disappearance of that kind of thing and the replacement of that thing by huge restaurant groups that have, you know, five properties, 10 properties, 16 properties across the country, and they keep opening new properties and whatever, like that model is because you have to do a dance with massive real estate investment. And that means that the only restaurants that will be left, like it'll start to look like the 70s and the 80s in New York again, where if you wanted to go to like a really impressive restaurant you have to go into like extremely oak cuisine you know or or you're only going to your neighborhood mom and pop shops and honestly at this point i would rather only eat at the latter like i don't want to ever have to go back into temples to find dining you know i I agree with you i think i think there's hope but if it's only if we make policy change i i think in golf they call that a tough putt i mean i think (laughs) your spot i think you're spot on on the suggestions I got to be honest, unless you know more than I do, because you're even closer to the industry, I'm not sure much of that is, you know, rolling yet. You know, I I, I hope we get to that. So I think it's going to take some time. I agree. Um, So because of all of that, I mean, the way restaurants, wine, you know, sommeliers reemerge as things settle down. Um, a lot of more of the same, some good changes. I mean, what do you think we're going to see through the end of the year going into next year? Um, I have a very smart friend who works in London who said, I don't know, maybe three or four months ago at the beginning of this year, he said, the thing that frustrates me is that restaurant people, mostly, you know, owners, but also like the commentators on the restaurant industry, um, they don't even know that the worst is yet to come. And by that, really? what he meant, yeah, the, the fallout is going to take time, right? Like, you know, at my most recent job, for example, my my owner is planning, you know, potentially two new openings within by the end of this year. But I can tell you from firsthand experience, you know, we're severely understaffed. The management who has been working through this whole thing is exhausted. 
Um, there's, you know, everybody's <laughs> talked about the staffing shortage across the city right. and the country because this work is incredibly difficult, again, underpaid. And also, you know, if you're not vaccinated, it's still really scary to be in a building with 40 other people every day. Like it's, Agreed. you know, so there's yeah. all of these sort of deficits that we're running at right now. And then in order to, quote, recover, you've got people like slamming on the gas for growth and recovery, but no one has even had a second to like take their take their breath in, right? So, right. what it, I think what is going to happen over the next year, next calendar year, is that more and more people are going to quit, <laughs> and you, those people who quit will probably be replaced with young guns or young bucks who are excited and who are willing to be paid less and who are not so tired yet, you know, who are looking for opportunity. But that means that also you you bottom out an entire kind of you know, short generation of people who've been working in this right. line of work for 10 years or 15 years or even 20, you bottom that out and all of that knowledge and all of that experience and all of that input sort of goes away. Right. And you yeah. replace it with like inexperienced people kind of over and over and over again. And that's, that's the treadmill. Um, instead of I, making it so that like, I would love to encounter at some point, a SOM working in a regular restaurant with a seller that's got 500 bottles or like 500 SKUs or whatever, maybe 1500 and that and that sommelier is 65 years old like right. I'd, I'd be thrilled i'd be thrilled i would i'd be like god you're yeah. gonna know so much more than me tell me everything you know and you you see that in europe you don't see it here no. right like you see people who have no. cobs that they've been working in for 40 years and they can tell you everything and it's amazing like i didn't like if i had that ability you know like if i could build a cellar for 25 years so that i can be you know, 55 and telling people what's up, like, I would love, I would love to. Um, so yeah, well, I, I, th I think that it's going to bottom out pretty badly. I th yeah, which is, I don't think it's a take. I think it's, you know, the truth and going to happen. And I think that, you know, the way we run our business, you're not going to see that 50, 60 year old Psalm, you know, I think you're right. People are going to, you know, get out and eventually younger people are going to come in and, you know, that's a little sad. Uh, Amanda, we have to take a quick break. Um, we're talking to Amanda Smeltz. Uh, like I said, poet turned sommelier, turned poet. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk to her about a few other issues, and I'm not letting her get out of here without talking about some wines. <laughs> You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. 
the spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Amanda Smeltz, very prominent wine person in New York and poet. Um, So I want to talk to you a little about um, wine. Um, And I want to tap in because I think, you know, you're one of the true wine people that has a specific vision and you know i want to talk about that a little um you know when you were at estella and altro paradiso you were really able to you know put your imprint on everything and you presented wines from underappreciated regions and styles which was very cool um tell me about some of the wines regions and winemakers that continue to excite you. Um, and I ask you that cause I like to drop some info on my listeners. So, sure. you, you know, when you were at the restaurant, you know, now, um, and when we get to the wine list, we'll talk about some specific stuff too. So tell me about stuff that still excites you and you know, what, what's, you know, out there that's kind of new, that's exciting you. Oh man, the list is so long. Um, I Give feel me like- the highlights. <laughs> that's- uh, so do you want producers or regions or both? Both. You know, feel free to take it wherever you want. I okay. mean, y- y- you know, I mean, believe me, if we come out of here with a handful of, you know, wines, regions collectively, you know, that's a great thing for my listeners. Um, okay. So some regions and producers that I think are not looked at as much as they should be or just sort of unknown, but are where they have amazing history or there are new things being done. Um I'm I'm absolutely in love with the Steiermark in southern Austria, um, which is right on the border of uh, Slovenia and has connections to the sort of Adriatic corridor. Um, you know, so it's even though they speak German there, there's old Slavic roots in the region as well as um, you know, sort of touching down all the way to the Adriatic. So uh, I love the white wines that are produced in the region by natural producers. I think. Um, Sepp Muster is an icon there, but it's a really rural area. So no one, no one really kind of knows it. Although those wines are finally gaining traction, at least here in our market. Um, There's a few tiny producers, Ewald Verlich, um, Chepa rather from the produce from the winery Verlich um, makes really stunning whites as well out of Sauvignon Blanc and Morillon, um, Mm. which is the local name for Chardonnay. So I've been, what? I've been, Say that again and spell it for me. Morillon is a M O R I L L O N. I don't know if I ever heard of that. Yeah, Chardonnay only shows goes you how by much I suck there. at this. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but I also um, I've been watching Sicily really closely over the last couple of years for sure. Um, yeah, I think that there's a huge sort of um, birth of a new wave of winemakers and and young producers who are kind of taking a risk for the first time and opening their own small wineries and making a lot of really beautiful natural wine kind of all over the island. Um, and it's really only, it's only in like a second generation that that's happening in Sicily yeah. because the economics are so rough that, you know, it can be really hard for people to produce their own wine and actually have that be a livable, like a livable thing, you know? Yeah. Um, so there, you know, there's to me. White and red in Sicily, right? White and red. Yep. There's, um, you know, Etna Bianco's and all that are just. Totally. 
um, I've been paying really close attention to the whites coming out of um, Alcamo in the northwestern corridor of the island, um, which is an area that, you know, has a tradition of white winemaking, but there are more people kind of breathing new life into the white wines from there. I especially love Alessandro Viola um, in that region. I think he's going to be iconic, uh, even though I shouldn't tell you that because his wines are be- going to become more expensive. Yeah. Um, but I you think he's really it. amazing. You ruined it for everybody, Amanda. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, you, know what's, you know what's funny, though? Sicily is you know, been a favorite of Psalms for a few years, you know, not forever. And, you know, there's the wines. What's cool is that you could sit here today and specify a certain region, like, you know, Alcamo in the Northwest Corridor, which is kind of, you know, not the next thing, but they've been making great wines there. And, you know, you've discovered them recently. I mean, it's just great that, you know, even a newer region has even newer regions, which is Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's sort of exciting to see, you know, that it's not just Etna, right? Like, and, yeah, and that's that, that we point. continue to discover, you know, different pockets that have been around, but, you know, are now getting new voices in those regions. Um, yeah. And I've also, um, I continue Give me to one more. dig into unique pockets of Germany where there's uh, also a rebirth of new natural winemaking happening in that country um, around the regions of places like the Faults and Franken, you know, outside of the famous um, right. sort of Mosul and Rheingau. Mosul, there are people. Right experimenting with new grape varieties, not new, but, you know, grape varieties that are lesser known on the global kind of scale and are making wines that are a little less straight laced and a little more um, avant-garde. And I'm extremely excited about that place too. Um, Jonas Dostert is a producer. Wait, say that again. Jonas Dostert is a producer I've been really excited about there. Okay. That's a good one. Um, I think when people think of uh, Germany, the Falls, Moselle, um, they don't think of Pinot Noir and, right. you know, a lot of the reds. Those are exciting, right? Absolutely. Um, there's yeah. totally beautiful red wine coming out of there down too. Yeah, we should look out for that. Um, are th- I'm sure these have been favorites of yours, you know, for a while and they've been presented at the restaurant. Are there any wines, you know, that you got on early that you were serving, um, you know, that are now getting their due recognition, you know, which we just said is good and bad. I mean, it's good because these guys deserve it. It's bad because either the prices go up or you can't get it. But I mean, do you see stuff that you really, you know, took time to understand and present to your customers, you know, are now getting their due recognition? Yeah. Every one of those producers I just listed for you. (laughs) Oh, good. All right, um, so then you you take a responsibility, you know, for turning a lot of people onto these and and talking about it, and then they become you know evangelists, which is nice. Yeah, I've, t- I've tried to I've tried to make that some of my mo. I think it's important for wine people. You know, one of my big frustrations, just from an industry standpoint, is when everybody buys the same wines kind of over and over and over again. Right. And, you know, you go to restaurants around the country, and depending on what camp of wine people they belong to, you see the same producers, you know, it's like Balthazar Cornas over and over and over and over again. You know, yeah, or, or, I th- that's a good example and a good point. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with the example. No, I know, love the, his wines, but the point the is, the point is legit. Everyone buys you know. the same stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yes. So and, that, that, that's a good thing. Um, you know, that you moved away from all of that. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you 
was and uh, you know the term natural wine we we wrestle with it and you and i will agree that that's not the best term but we know that it's you know low intervention farming is important organics biodynamic um i'm trying to figure out when the natural thing really hit you when you understood it you started drinking them you started evangelizing and all that there had to be a point you know how far back was that uh the transition for me yeah i mean when did you really like maybe you were drinking them and didn't realize and then you delved into the story and then the makers and all of that yep i mean i'm guessing with you it's longer than you know where most people would tag natural wines oh i've been drinking it three four years you know when was that 2008 2009 um because before then i i got training in a you know a much more formal style of restaurant where the cellar was full of in milwaukee where the cellar was full of California Chardonnay, you know, a ton of domestic wine, like, uh, you know, a ton of Merlot, a ton of Zinfandel, a ton of Cabernet Sauvignon, like very little European wine because, you know, 15 years ago. Didn't I say in the intro that Milwaukee is one of the world's great (laughs) food and wine capitals? Okay. There's your diversity right there. It's tongue in cheek. Yeah. Well, you're explaining that. Yeah. Um, You know, so I, I got a, I got a ton of training on sort of what was, what everybody, at least in the States was consuming at that time. And depending on where you are in our country, like it's still like that, right? Like if you're, if you're working in San Francisco and high end restaurants, you know, not like the cheeky hip stuff, like you're still serving a ton of those wines you need to. Um, you know, likewise, if you are in Europe and you're in a really high end, you know, sort of restaurant setting, you're probably still selling a ton of classical Bordeaux and old school kind of Burgundy. Right. So, um, but what happened in 2008 and 2009, which was my last year in Milwaukee and then my first year in New York, I encountered a handful of producers who farmed radically differently and whose winemaking was a little bit different. And they are, they're totally burned into my memory because their wines were so shocking for how different they were. And they were, they were immediately magnetic for me. And I, I, I marked them. I was like, these wines are different and I love them. And was, I went, was, I, I went in Amanda, pursuit of them, you know, was that the Roberta days? Uh, no, no, it was, I worked for three years. I opened the Breslin and the John Dory okay. and the Ace Hotel. Um, Which were open to interesting wines, yeah, not, you know, yep. the normal list. So that was the entree to the exposure. Uh, and also, you know, my my wine director, general manager and the fine dining place in Milwaukee had a handful of them on the list as well. So they were hiding out in wine lists. Right. And when I encountered them, they were immediately visible to me as as, you know, radically different, like not just a little bit different, but radically different. Yeah. Um, and I was really compelled. I was like, OK, these I have to know kind of why these things taste so different and why they're so beautiful. Um and and that that sort of led me down the path. But I think I think I was pretty solidly decided by about 2012, like after drinking kind of conventional wine and natural wine back to back and, you know, right. really sort of seeing a lot of stuff. I was like, OK, for me, this is just the stuff that moves me the most. Um, right. And, and I, just, you know, I've been that way ever since. Just curious, at that very beginning, was it mostly French wines or it was all over the place? No, you're right. It was mostly French. It was. was, Yeah, it was mostly French. And then you you realize, you know, they're doing it in Italy and in Eastern Europe and all that, which is very cool. Yep. I want to get to our wine list um, because I want to further 
pull out of you some uh, interesting info. Um, but I really can't end the show. We'll end the show with the wine list, but I can't end, you know, the interview part with asking you the real question, which is, you know, and if you know them at all, is what are your plans for the future? We know you're going to go to this, you know, writer artistic retreat. What happens after that? And what are you looking at? Um, I am probably going to try to write a book. Um, I'll probably try to write two. <laughs> um, one okay. of them is my own writing, right? My poetry, which is my sort of other life and my other career. Um, but I also, I intend to write a series of essays about wine and restaurants. Um, if only because I've written one or two here or there and they seem to have received positive responses. Yes, I've um, read them. You know, and I, I do think that there is a little bit of a lack of sort of transparent writing about what it's like to work, you know, in this line of work. And also the, you know, the things that I've learned about wine over the years, I do think, at least from my coworkers, they've often encouraged me that they like, like to hear me talk about this stuff. So if only on their behalf, I might sort of try to put it all down into a series of essays and um, maybe find a publisher. Hopefully someone will want to hear it, but I, right. I intend to work on that for the rest of this year. Um, so wait, I have to ask you a dad question. Go ahead. <laughs> so I love that. You know, I'd love to read the book on wine and your perspective. And, you know, for four years, I've been a poetry fanboy of yours. Um, and I'm amazed that the poem I read then and now is called Crown for a Natural Disaster. I mean, when yeah. I went back to that, it's like, Jesus. Um, and at the end, talking about taking about. But here's my dad question. So I support all of that. How are you going to pay for your rent and everything? <laughs> my own father asked me these questions, Sam. I would he does. You so you need me like a hole in the head. <laughs> Um, I, I will have obviously have to take a job of some fashion, um, okay. which I will probably do toward the end of this year, but it remains to be seen. My, my two okay. thoughts are I will either take work on the distribution side of things. Um, right. you know, but I, I am a restless soul and I don't know that sales will agree with me forever. Um, it is likely that at some point I'm going to want to learn how to do viticulture myself. Um, right. it's, it's the one thing that is missing in my, in my understanding is, you know, how to actually tend vines on my own. And not that I ever would want to enter into it as my like sole income, but I wouldn't mind, you know, having somebody help me plant, you know, one hectare or one and a half hectare somewhere where I can like really practice it and kind of learn it myself and just have a little good, barn that's got 14 barrels in it and kind of, and try to figure out fermentation. On the good news is, you know, a lot of people, Yeah, I do. you, you know, I who do. can offer that to you. And last week we had Camille Riviere on and, you know, she's a good soul too. And, you know, she has to do, do sales, you know, for her business, but yeah. that's not the only thing. There's the viticulture and the winemakers and the story and everything. So I think if you want to pursue that, um, um, you know, there's a good runway ahead of you. Um, my last question, I think you answered, and it, it could be both, you know, no parent likes to pick their favorite kid, right? Yeah. But if you had, if you had to pick between wine and poetry or writing, where would you go? 
No, I can't. I can't choose. <laughs> but but, but you, you know what? It, it's funny how you answered the question. You're going to try to write a book. You're going to continue on poetry. You would like to develop some, you know, uh, property by learning viticulture. And if you have to go on, you know, the business side a little, you will. So it's a little of everything. I love yeah. all my kids. Good yeah. answer. <laughs> All right. All right. Here's the wine list. You answered it four and a half years ago, and I think I'm going to compare the answers. <clears throat> I asked the same five questions. We've done this over 200 times. I post them on social media. Uh, <laughs> don't dwell on the answers. Just, you know, answer what's on your mind. Um, so the first question is, and if you answered it with the stuff that's exciting, you add to it. What are you drinking now? What's interesting you? What are you tasting? What's in your fridge? Do the seasons bring a change in what you're drinking? What What's on the table now? Let's see. What's in my fridge right now? I have an absolutely beautiful um, single vineyard bottling of Malvasia um, de Sitges from... Uh, the Penedes in Catalonia from a producer nice. I love. Um, his Ooh. name is Tony Carbo and he bottles under La Salada. Um, one mm. of my absolute favorite Catalan producers and he makes super aromatic, really delicate, really refined white wines. Nice. Um, that's in there. I've got a bottle of Piquette from Wild Ark Farm up in the Hudson Valley. That um, Todd was on the show, yeah, and yeah. I think I think the Grape Nation had the guy that really popularized Piquet before <laughs> totally. anybody, you we know. Just, and he's doing it like in the Hudson Valley. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it, it's so exciting, delicious, um, so exciting. So I also have a bottle of um, Floreal cider, which is the cider that Hayu makes in conjunction with a big organic yeah, I um, saw that. orchard uh, yep. in the Columbia Gorge, and they are just some of the most interesting, smoky, layered, really beautiful ciders, I think, in our country right now. Yeah. Um, I'm drinking a lot of cider these days, actually. I'm sort of falling back in love with the winemakers who are working with other fruit, you know, and I think that's very much- Co-fermentations and yeah, all that. It's, it's yeah, a path, it's a future path for our country, and I'm, I'm yeah. extremely excited about the quality of wine that we're making in that yeah. fashion, both in New York and Oregon and, and lots of different places. All um, right, those are good ones. You don't have to give me more. I okay. don't want to overlook because I want you to answer my other questions. No problem. This was, always, this was always the goofiest question on the uh, list, but tell me Amanda Smeltz's favorite wine and food pairing. Not what you think a good wine and food pairing is, but what you like. And it's not something you're going to eat every week, every month, but what's that pairing? What wine, what food? I'll, I'll give you one of my like all-time makes-me-cry kind of pairings. Um, <laughs> That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Claire Nadan is one of my favorite producers in Burgundy, and she has these old vine plots of aligoté that she blends together in a in a cuvée called Le Clou 34. And to me, it's one of the best aligoté on the planet, um, certainly in the top two or three in Burgundy. And right. I, you know, as much as I don't want to be a francophile because it's so obnoxious, um, I've had it with, you know, actual snails and parsley butter heated up in my oven. And I, I, it's like one of those things where you're like, God damn it. I want to cast aside burgundy forever because of all of the stuff that's attached to it. But these snails and parsley butter and this aligoté is just face melting together. They're, they're really beautiful. Um, just so you know, nobody's like ever. <laughs> 
Yeah, nobody's ever, and I say this over, nobody ever gave that particular answer. So, <laughs> But it, it sounds like you think it's like the champagne and oysters type answer. You oh, know? it absolutely is. It's yeah, like a very no, fancy a, answer to give. You know? that, that's a good one because uh, uh, a good shout out to Nadine and, and, you know, snails getting in there. All right. <laughs> good one on that. Third question, and you work, and you you worked, you were insular, you know, for most of your career, but you do get out, and now, you know, you're out. Um, see if you can answer this. Um, your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. And I would put Estella in there, because I've eaten there a bunch of times, because of everything <laughs> we discussed. And here's what I'm looking for you to answer. Great vibe, great list. Um environment, knowledgeable people, great list. You know, that's why I would say, Estella, who, who do you think outside of you, you know, does a good job with that? Man, um, in New York and or it, any, anywhere? Well, you could go anywhere. And hey, don't feel like if you don't say someone, you excluded them. These are just some you're pulling out of the air. Yeah, sure. I mean, I go to different restaurants for different things, right? Like, yeah. Um, so I go to the Four Horsemen because I can always drink something I love there. Um, Always a great answer. Yep. I still go to Roberta's because I still think that their pizza is some of the best in the city. Um, also, agree. there's still some of my wines hiding out in that cellar. So that's totally good for me. There you <laughs> um, go. You know, we I, do the show from there. So I get yeah. to go in and out of there a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, Give me one more. I mean, and for, for a classic kind of thing, although I haven't been able to go for a couple of years for obvious reasons because of the pandemic, for one of the most classic meals in the city. Like I still have to say Gramercy Tavern, you know, yeah. Um, Chris Raftery has maintained that wine list beautifully. And if you want something that feels like the nineties still in New York, like that, bar, it's hard to beat that in bar, a good way. Sure. Yeah. 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 It's hard to beat that. I bar, agree. Sure. And Michael Anthony's still there and his food is still amazing. Um, it's a classic that's held up. Um, those are good ones. All right. Fourth question, favorite all time wine. There's a chance when I initially asked you this, I was looking for you to tell me the rarest, most expensive wine you ever drank. The question has evolved and I can give a crap about that answer. What I care <laughs> about is what is that wine, that favorite all time wine that has been important to you that, you know, woke you or had an impact or, you know, that important wine to you. Can you think of one, one or two? Yeah, there are several, but, um, I, I was really, really lucky a few years ago. I was working at this event called Riesling fire that, um, yes. is, you know, big, big Riesling head stuff. And whatever. That's, what's his name? Steven. Steven yeah. From Von yeah. Boden. Um, I yep. was working at this event and I was working with this producer, Visor Kunzler, who I think are, are probably the greatest young producer in the Mosul right now. And they had brought a bottle of a style of wine that I almost never drink that I never touch because usually it's so heavily sulfured and it's so sweet that I don't really care for them. But they had brought a bottle of 2005 Trockenbeeren Auslese from their cellar. And it was one of the last four bottles that they had. Wow. And um, I opened it. And at that point it was 15, you know, or 14 or 15 years old. And I was just moved to like absolute silence because right. they don't make this style very frequently. And it was a, a freak of the vintage. Um, Do you, you know, remember like, the vintage? 2005. Oh, you did say that. Yeah. Um, and I was just so moved because they made so little and they brought this yeah. unbelievable rarity from their tiny cellar. And it was absolutely stunning. Um, weightless. And the sugar had sort of like lightened and dissipated. 
ethereal, powerful, concentrated, but like super soft and and like uh, just uh, remarkable. It's one of those wines where you're like, wow, this is yet another thing that wine can do. Um, and that's one of the most special wines I've ever I've ever had for sure. That sounds like a good one. And I've had similar wines and that wine, when it comes out, just everyone is in awe of it, yeah. especially if you have a bunch of Psalms around, because you know how much <laughs> they love, you know, Riesling. All right. So like I said, we're going to post all your answers. Last question. And I think you should be as good as anybody to answer this. So no pressure. Um, recommend to me. Best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks. Recommend a white, recommend a red. You could do a region, you know, like uh, Muscadet is a good value for white. But, you know, you can get specific with winemakers. Give me, you know, one of each. I always say my kids are in their 20s. They can't afford to totally. bring crap wine to as a gift or a party, but they can't afford $30, $40. So how do you, you know, wow people in that range? Um, I mean, I think, yeah, young, young producers, like people just kind of starting out are a great way to go on this for sure Okay. Um, before they get famous. So that's helpful. Um, there's that's a, a good strategy. Yep. I'll give you a producer near that Alcamo region that I was talking about. Um, okay. the whites and the reds from Porta del Vento in Northwestern Sicily are super affordable. The Catarato is delicious. They make a red from Perecone. That's amazing. Um, so if you want to check out some really beautiful, naturally made, inexpensive Sicilian stuff, they're a great producer to go with right now. That's great. Um, so that's red and white. Yeah. Yeah, anything else come to mind? Yeah. I mean, that wanted, would cover the answer. It does. If you wanted to do French, I think that the um, the wine, the inexpensive wines from Bruno Rochard in the Loire Valley are a steal for how much they cost. R-O-C-H-A-R-D. Yeah. They, they probably clock in more toward the $20 mark. But okay. But that's, that's the range. And the Grolot are out of this world. And he's a little hard to find, but if you can find him, he's it's unbelievable quality for the price. Well, we're going to look for them. All right. You did a great job on that. You gave me some great uh, recos. And like I said, I'm going to post them. Amanda, I am sorry to have to let you go, but we burned through an hour pretty quickly. And I was excited about this show because of what's going on in your life and your take on everything. So I appreciate you coming on. Let me do a quick wrap up and then I want to get some info from you. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at S. Ben Ruby. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. I know it's a little confusing, but you can always use the hashtag The Grape Nation to get to us on both. Um, we're trying to build a little community on Clubhouse, so follow us at Ben Ruby there. Um, like I said, I will post within the next week Amanda's wine list and any other wines she mentioned on our social media site. Um, Amanda, I would say to you, where can we follow you? I still want to. And then I would say, tell me about the restaurants, even though all the restaurants you worked at, you liked, we don't have to do that. But if people want to follow your life and travels, are you open to telling them where to go? Yeah, for sure. Instagram's the best place. I try to, you know, make little notes about where, where I am and who I'm visiting and that kind of thing. Um, my handle is smeltsmonger. So you're welcome to okay. follow me there. Um, okay. That's S-M-E-L-T-Z-M-O-N-G-E-R, right? Yeah, that's right. 
If you don't okay. like pictures of books and texts, though, you you'll you won't enjoy following me. So that's that's a warning. <laughs> I like that stuff, so I'm happy for that. All right. Thank you to our guest, Amanda Smeltz. Thank you to our engineer, Matt, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.